together and let's turn on our Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Sunday morning we're studying the book of Hebrews together. We come to Hebrews chapter 12 and if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and just wave to them, get their attention and they'll get you a Bible so that you can read along as well as listen to the Word of God. And uh, please, if you don't own a Bible, we want everybody to own a Bible. Make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you today. We pick things up in verse 18. This is the word of the Lord, going to outlive the heavens and the earth. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure what was commanded, and what was commanded is, and uh, if so, much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you don't refuse him, that is God, who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, how much much more shall we not escape if we turn from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of all those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. And therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word. We're humbled with a sense of privilege that we feel every time we open it. It's so different from everything in this world. It's a holy Bible. And we thank you, Lord, that you have provided us with a holy Bible in an unholy world in order that it might wash our minds Cleanse our hearts. Give us strength, Lord, and equip us in the way that it uniquely does. And Lord, we pray that all of the reasons that these verses are in the Bible, all of the things that they're intended to accomplish in our lives as your people, that they would accomplish that by your Holy Spirit as we study it now. Lord, we're hungry for the things of you. We recognize more than ever in our lives our need for you.
and the things that can never be shaken or touched by the circumstances of this life. Take us by the hand now in our individual hearts, Lord, and teach us the beauty and the majesty, the revelation, the warning, the exhortation that is found in these verses. And we ask it of you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The writer of the book of Hebrews was writing to a group of Jewish Christians who were suffering tremendous persecution for no other reason than that they loved the Lord Jesus. And they were living for Him and obeying Him, being faithful to His call upon their lives. And the persecution became so great, and that's a persecution that occurs against God's people all around the world, and including Modesto and the surrounding areas, the rejection that can occur, the pain that occurs because of that rejection, simply because God has come into our lives and saved us and then now made us into a completely different people, an altogether better person. And yet what God is making us into is unacceptable to many people. And the conviction that our life brings into different circumstances in life and the recognition that people uh, see that if God did it in us, He can do it in them as well. And so it makes people responsible for their sin and the lives that they live. And so the solution so often that the world brings against such a thing is the same thing that they attempted with Christ. And that is to rather than turn to the light, to put the light out. And so the persecution is real. The rejection is real. And it became so great in their lives and the difficulty and the trial so great that they were actually being tempted to abandon their commitment to Christ in order to find some relief from the trial and hardship they were facing by virtue of being Christians. And here we have in these verses in chapter 12, or the close of chapter 12, we have the final warning to these readers against abandoning their commitment to Jesus for salvation. And the warning consists of two parts. The first part, verses 18 to 24, is just kind of a gentle reasoning on the part of the author with them. And then just in case anybody... Um, uh, couldn't be instructed by a gentle but firm reasoning, he then closes the, uh, the chapter with a very, very strong warning uh, against abandoning Christ in verses 25 through 29. Now, his general reasoning there in verses 18 through 24, the point that he makes here to the readers is that there isn't anything to be found back under the law of Moses. There isn't anything to be found back in the life that we left before we came to know Christ that compares to the life that we know as a Christian. No matter how great the persecution or the hardship or the difficulty we face for being Christians... And he drives home this point by likening uh, 
and attempted a relationship with God under the law of Moses, which was what they were being tempted to go back to. They're Jewish Christians. They wanted to go back under the law of Moses. And so he likens uh, this attempted a relationship with God under the law of Moses to Mount Sinai, and then he brings out the quality of relationship that a person enjoys with God because of faith in Christ, and he likens that to Mount Zion. Now, he reminded them of the nature of the ministry of the law, and those who were choosing to leave grace to return to the law, he realized they needed to be reminded of the awesome and fearful circumstances that surrounded the giving of the law of Moses to the children of Israel to begin with. And all that's recorded in Exodus chapters 19 and 20. And so Mount Sinai represented the law of Moses because that's where the law of Moses was given to Moses by God. And the reminder in the read the writer reminds them and reminds us that the giving of the law of Moses had a dramatic effect upon the children of Israel when it was received. It produced two great things in them. It produced fear in them, and it produced a great insecurity into their lives. And the writer reminds us of six things in connection with God coming down at Mount Sinai in order to give the law of Moses. That when God came down on that mount to give the law to Moses, that great event was accompanied by a great fire on the mount, the blackness of cloud as he describes here. There was darkness, there was thunder, there was the sound of a trumpet, there was the voice of God, and the effect that even this very, very limited demonstration of God's holiness and majesty upon the children of Israel was to fill them with fear and a sense of separation. The realization that God was too holy for man to approach on his own terms. And you remember they cried out to Moses. They said to him, you speak with us and we will hear. But let not God speak with us lest we die. You talk with him and then you talk with us. We don't want to deal with him. He's too holy. We're too sinful and we'll probably die. And the problem with coming to Moses and telling Moses all of this in the light of the awesomeness of the Mount Sinai experience is that what was happening at Mount Sinai in this demonstration of God's holiness and of his power even terrified Moses, as the passage tells us in verse 21. And like Mount Sinai, the law of Moses produces within man a great sense of awe concerning the holiness of God. But no hope of sinful man ever attaining to a personal relationship with God on the basis of law. It communicated to man, you better keep your distance from God. 
And this is what happens to fallenness, whether it's a mountain or a human being without a solution to his fallenness. And this is what happens when man tries to approach God on his own terms without a solution to his fallenness. And they got the message. And the message was God is holy, man is unholy, and because of this man can never have a relationship with God based upon law, not even the law of Moses. Intimacy with God, a relationship with God is thus impossible because God is so holy and man is so fallen. That was the message of Mount Sinai. And then the writer asked them why in the world they would they would ever want to go back to that. A great respect for God, for sure, under the law of Moses, but no hope of a personal relationship with Him. A great respect for God, but always living in a comparative fear of Him. After all, If that's what His holiness did to Mount Sinai, I mean, something fallen, something intangible of His creation, a mountain, something that was fallen not by its own choice but by circumstance, then what would God's holiness do when it came into contact with sinful man who has fallen not only by circumstances but by choice every single day? And I think it's good to be reminded of the fact of what we covered back in chapter 4 because it bears remembering and because not everybody in the room here today was present at that time. And it's vital to understand this. And somebody might ask, well, what in the world? I've always heard good things about the law of Moses. What is supposed to be our understanding of the purpose of the law of Moses? And first of all, we are not to view the law of Moses as some terrible thing or some anti-Jesus thing. Or we're never to believe that Jesus was anti-law as the Jewish religious leaders uh, accused him falsely of being. Jesus said concerning the law, he said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Paul wrote by the Holy Spirit concerning the law, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now, the second thing about the law that's important to understand is that though the law is good, it's only good for what God intended it to be. So it's important for us to understand what in the world did God intend the law of Moses to be in this world and in a human life? What is his intent and purpose for the law of Moses? And again, the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day They had made the law of Moses into something God had never intended it to be, and that is a way of working our way to heaven. You keep the law of Moses, and then you, we can make ourselves holy enough and fit enough and acceptable for heaven. And that's how they viewed the law of Moses, that it was a way to be saved on the basis of good works. But the Apostle Paul wrote of the purpose of the law, writing to the churches in Galatia, 
chapter 3, verses 19 through 25, he said, What purpose then does the law serve? Well, that's the great question we asked this morning. It was added, he said, because of transgressions to reveal sin. Till the seed, that is the Messiah, should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been given a law by which a person could be given life, truly righteousness could have been by the law. If there was a law that could have saved mankind, the law of Moses was that law. But he said, but Scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. And therefore, the law was our tutor, our schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, once we become a Christian, By putting our faith in Christ, we are no longer under a tutor or under the law. One of the purposes of the law is to expose every single one of us as sinners, as being less than perfect and thus unacceptable in and of ourselves for heaven. There's a whole bunch of us that are in this room that were just like me before I became a Christian. I hear the gospel, the assessment of the fact that I'm a sinner didn't offend me at all. I knew I was a sinner all my life. <laughs> didn't fight against it. But there's a whole world of other people that are way different than me and different than some of you. And some of them may, may sit in this room today. Your experience of coming to Christ was a different kind of way. And when you were first told that you were a sinner in need of salvation, that was a tremendous offense to you. That you could not in and of yourself make yourself holy enough or acceptable enough to enter into heaven on the basis of your own good works or your own virtue. And there's a whole world of people that we live around as Christians today for whom the cross and that aspect of the cross is a great offense to their pride. And the law of Moses was needed to communicate the fact that we cannot be saved on the basis of law. It reveals us and exposes us as sinners. When you take the perfection of those 613 commandments that make up the law of Moses and you put them up against any human life, it will expose that human life as crooked, as bent, as misformed. In the same way that if you were to find a perfectly perfect two-by-four in a lumber yard, You say, I need six of these. I've only found one. 
And if you've ever been through a stack of cheap lumber, you take that one and you put it, and you put these other, every piece of lumber up against something that's straight, and it exposes the flaw in every other piece of lumber. And that's what the law of Moses does. The same way it reveals each and every one of us to be sinners, to be less than perfect, to be bent and to be bowed and to be crooked. As the Apostle Paul said to the, to the church at Rome, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified by his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Again, why is that important? Because a person has to know that they're a sinner in order to see their need for a Savior. Why would I even give Jesus any consideration? Why would I give what you're saying to me any thought at all, my need for a Savior, if you can't establish for me my need? The law of Moses establishes that need. The law of Moses exposes us to be sinners. And that's why the law is likened to a tutor or a schoolmaster by the Apostle Paul. And a schoolmaster is someone who teaches someone something. And the law of Moses teaches each of us that we are a sinner. And every day it drives that point home like a great neon sign flashing in the night. You are a sinner. You are a sinner. You are less than perfect. You are a sinner. And you cannot earn your way into heaven. You need a Savior. You need a Savior. You need a Savior. And in this way, the law keeps me from ever fooling myself by thinking that I can ever make myself acceptable to God on the basis of my own effort. And it forces me then to look for a right standing before God based upon something other than the law of Moses. And in human history, I'm left with one thing, and that is by putting my faith in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. And once I put my faith in Jesus for my salvation, the law of Moses has finished its job in my life. The law of Moses is happy with what it's accomplished in my life. It is satisfied. It has accomplished the one great thing that it was established for. Not as a means of working my way to heaven, but as a means of causing me to abandon any attempt of doing so and then to put my faith ultimately in Christ. Paul put it this way. Again, the book of Romans, chapter 10, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And it is so vital that every one of us realize that we cannot earn our way into heaven. You say, I'm a Christian. I've heard that a thousand times. But some haven't heard it once. It's mind-blowing to them. Their whole view of life themselves, their assessment of the world around them, their self-assessment completely changes on the basis of just that one realization. And it's desperately needed in our world and in our city and in our country. And we realize that we can't earn our way into heaven because perfection is the standard 
and every one of us have fallen short of that. There's none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as the Bible says. And that is why God has made the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life in heaven a free gift. He knew we couldn't earn it. He knew that. He knows that about us. He doesn't condemn a single one of us for not being able to keep the law of Moses. He knows we can't keep the law of Moses. Now, there's a higher law in our life as Christians, the law of the Spirit. I don't have time to get into that. But he knew we couldn't earn our way into heaven or keep the law of Moses. And so at great expense to himself, he made salvation a gift through his Son. And salvation is as easy to receive is opening up a gift on your birthday. It's that simple. And so the law of Moses is still good today for those of you who have not yet been saved. It cries out this morning, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You cannot make yourself acceptable to for heaven. You're already disqualified. You need to come to Jesus. As Paul again wrote to the Galatians, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, then truly righteousness would have been by the law. You know what Paul's saying there? He's saying this, that if the law of Moses can't get you into heaven, on the basis of law and good works, then no other law can either. Not your own law that you write in your own heart. You say, this is the law. If I do this, then this will make me acceptable for heaven. I know I'll go to heaven when I die. If the law of Moses can't get you into heaven, your law can't get you into heaven or the law of any other religious system or religious rituals or religious teaching, none of them. If the law of Moses can't provide us a means of accessing heaven on the basis of works, then no other law that man can come up with, religious or secular, will be able to accomplish what the law of Moses could not accomplish and was not intended to accomplish. Now, in contrast to Mount Sinai, a relationship, he tells us in verses 22 to 24, a relationship with God through the new covenant, through faith in Jesus Christ, it produces an entirely different quality of experience that he likens to Mount Zion, one of the great mounts of the city of Jerusalem. And here, though, Mount Zion refers to the new Jerusalem of Revelation chapter 21, it refers to heaven itself. And he's saying that in Jesus we have access to heaven which is greater than Mount Sinai. God no longer says to us, once we become a Christian, keep your distance. But he says, come closer. You draw nigh to me, I will draw nigh to you. Come as close as you want to me. You can have as intimate 
a relationship as you desire to have with me. They knew nothing of that from the law or from Mount Sinai. But that's what we have in Christ. And every one of us has exactly the relationship with God that we want to have this morning. Because God puts it in our court. You draw nigh to me, I'll draw nigh to you. We, each of us determines the depth, the beauty, the intimacy of relationship that we have with God. God is always willing to go as far as we want to go in that relationship in our life. And so God isn't saying, keep your distance any longer. He's saying, you come close and come near with confidence because of Jesus We have the confidence of heaven. The problem with good works as a means of getting into heaven is you never know whether you've done enough or you never know if that sin undid ten good works or a hundred good works or a thousand good works. You never know what the scale is, what the rating is. So there's never confidence in a relationship with God and good works can never produce a confidence that I will one day end up in heaven. It can produce wishful thinking, but God doesn't want us as Christians to have the idea that we're going to get into heaven be merely a wishful thought. He wants us to have a confidence in that. And Christ provides us with that confidence. Do you know how sure it is that you're going to see me as a Christian in heaven one day? Now, that may not be good news for everybody, but I'm going to be there. The Bible speaks of the fact of me as a Christian and you as a Christian that our salvation is so sure he already sees us seated in the heavenlies. He already sees us there. Now, that's quite a confidence of heaven that we live with every single day. You realize the emotional, the mental freedom, the lack of toil that is on our lives as Christians simply by virtue of the fact that we don't have to worry about that, about the hereafter, to worry about eternity. Do you realize what has been lifted off of us on a daily basis, a weight we don't carry because of Christ? It's fabulous, isn't it? really is. And in heaven, he tells us in verses 22 and 23, we're going to enjoy the company of the angelic host of heaven. I can't wait to see my first angel. We're going to enjoy the company of the Old Testament saints who are already there the New Testament saints that are already there, all those, he tells us, in the New Testament and the Old Testament who've been made perfect by faith. That's some good company. All you got to do is have one or two or five really rotten, crummy, evil people near your life that makes you pay a price week in and week out for knowing and loving the Lord to produce a great appreciation for the fact that one day I will be there and that is the kind of person that will inhabit heaven. These Jewish Christians, they had lost friends, 
They had lost relationships with family members. They'd lost jobs. They were being shunned. They were being rejected. They were being persecuted. But the writer reminds them of the relationships that will be theirs forever and ever and ever. And it's a good reminder. And the friend and the family member and the co-worker and the neighbor that shuns and rejects you as a Christian is no fun It can hurt a lot. But remember the friends and the family that you've gained because of your faith in Christ. Abraham. Abraham. Moses. Elijah. David. Daniel. Jeremiah. Mary, Paul, Peter, Cornelius, on and on we could go. And they're all waiting there for us, as well as mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and husbands and wives and mentors and friends who have gone on ahead of us. And I'll tell you, it's a pleasant thought to a Christian who's paying a price for being faithful to the Lord. But then on top of all of them, he tells us in verse 24, there is Jesus himself, the one who makes heaven, heaven. That one day we will see him face to face in heaven and spend eternity with him. The one who's provided us with this new covenant or this new relationship with God. The one who's provided us with the forgiveness of sins and with salvation and the washing away of our sins. Not on the basis of law, but as a gift on the basis of grace. And the one, he tells us, whose applied blood speaks better things than that of Abel. You remember in the Old Testament, Abel was killed by his brother Cain. And God confronted Cain. And what did he say to Cain? Your brother's innocent blood cries out to me from the ground. And what did the blood of, Cain, the blood of Abel cry out? It cried out for vengeance. But what does the blood of Christ cry out? It cries out for the greater need in each one of our lives. It cries out forgiveness and grace and the washing away of sins. And Abel's blood that was shed was innocent blood, but not perfectly innocent blood. Christ's blood that was shed was perfectly innocent. And his blood cries out for a better thing, not for vengeance. But it makes a cry to all of the world today to come and to be saved by that blood. And the point that the Holy Spirit is making to these Christians is that there isn't anything better than Christ out there. And that despite all of the hardship and the trial that we are, that we face in this Christian life, that we're getting to live the greatest life a person can live this side of heaven. And he's telling them, stay in that covenant. Now, they came to know Christ out of a religious background. 
Do you realize that most of the world, when they become Christians, they will leave a religious background of good works in order to become saved? It is only in the Western world that the majority of people will leave a life of sin and selfishness with no religious background to come and to know Christ. And so here he speaks to them. Though they come out of a religious background, he tells them there's nothing back there for you. And the life that you look back on so longingly doesn't compare to the life that you're living now. But the same thing is true of every one of us who came to know Christ out of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. No religious background. And when we can be tempted to do the very thing that they're being tempted to do, and that is to leave Christ for the ease that we remember the, back in the life that we were once living, when at least we didn't have to deal with these things. And he says, don't do it. You left that to come to Christ for a reason. All those reasons are still back there. The life that we are living as Christians is the greatest life that a person can live in this world. And then in case some of the listeners didn't connect with this relatively gentle approach, now in verses 25 through 29, he turns up the volume. And basically the point that he makes here in these verses is to stay with what cannot be shaken. Look at verse 25 again. See that you do not refuse him. That is God who speaks. For if they did not escape who ref- if they for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth Mount Sinai how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven concerning his son and that that's the heart of the warning that he gives here and he reminded them that if those who refuse the word of God through the old covenant didn't escape judgment, then how could those who refuse his words concerning his son? You say, what are his words concerning his son? The father said concerning the son, concerning Jesus, at his water baptism at the beginning of his public ministry. This is my beloved son in whom, singular, I am well pleased. Later on, when Jesus was in the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, the Father spoke and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And refused Jesus to head into eternity Christless is to perish. And his point is that all of that stuff at Mount Sinai, that great demonstration of God's holiness and His power, is going to pale in comparison to the judgment that's coming upon the world that willingly and knowingly rejects His Son. And that in comparison to the judgment that awaits any rejection, individual who rejects Christ, that that 
what happened on Mount Sinai is going to look like child play. Jesus said to Philip in John chapter 14, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And quoting from the Old Testament book of Haggai, in verse 26, the writer reminds us that there's a great judgment, a great shaking, future shaking, is coming to this earth. At Mount Sinai, there was an earthquake that shook but a mountain. The Holy Spirit declares that there's going to be a whole world shake, not just a regional shake or a mountain shake. And the word for shake that is used in the passage, it literally means to shake to and fro. And that shaking is coming to the world, following the great, including the great tribulation and following the great tribulation as Jesus comes at his second coming. And then ultimately and finally and completely at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ when all of this gives way to a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. And he tells us that only what cannot be shaken, will remain, and everything else will be destroyed. So I ask myself, what in the world can't be shaken? If everything that can be shaken is going to be shaken and destroyed, then what is this thing that can't be shaken? And it is only that which is built upon Christ. Only that is going to survive. And there's only one secure thing in this whole wide world that we live in, and that is the kingdom of God, which is built on Christ himself, founded upon Jesus. The end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. He said, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the wind blew and beat on that house. And I'll tell you, these Hebrew Christians were feeling it. And it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house. And it fell and great was its fall. And this knowledge of a coming worldwide judgment, this knowledge of a coming personal judgment before a holy God on the basis of how the world, what the world has done with Christ and what you have done with Christ, he tells us in verse 28, should produce thankfulness. And it does in me. I am thankful that because of my faith in Christ, I am a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom that lies beyond the reach of the nonsense and the insanity and the wickedness and the decision-making of this world. It makes us thankful for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And then it also produces within us, he tells, faithfulness. 
to continuing to serve the Lord with reverence and godly fear because our God is a consuming fire. Everything in this world is going to burn one day. It's all going to burn. Things that we fight over, the things that we get ulcers over, the things that people suffer nervous breakdowns over and attempt to attain, it is all going to burn. It is all temporary. It is a part of a kingdom that can be shaken. It has no part in the kingdom of God ultimately. And the heavens and the earth are going to pass away and only the kingdom of God and what is built upon Jesus is going to survive. Peter put it this way in Second Peter chapter 3. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, except for your house <laughs> or the car you want or the vacation you want or the whatever, no, no. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And then he tells us, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. And nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And to abandon Christ and to go back into the world is to go back into something God is going to destroy. It is fallen. It is unholy. It is reserved for judgment. And sometimes we just need to be reminded of that. When goofy temptations come into our minds... And it isn't just the heavens and the earth that's going to be destroyed one day, but all of the man-made religion and all of the religious rituals and all of the man-made traditions and all of the man-made wisdom and everyone who rejects the truth that is found in Jesus in order to follow a lie. And the writer is writing to them and to us and essentially saying, if you thought Sinai was tough... The great white throne judgment is going to make that look like a birthday party. And you don't want to stand before that Jesus and to look into those eyes, his eyes and then try to come up with a reason for why you rejected him when there is no reason for rejecting him. And so the writer tells them and tells us, stay faithful to that unshakable kingdom, the one that is built upon Christ alone. And so the first part of the passage, a gentle nudge. The second part of the passage, a very strong warning with a volume raised very loud because God knows he deals with a lot of different kind of people in this world. Some he just has to look at cross-eyed and they fall down in tears. 
Others are much more rebellious and stiff-necked. And he knows how to get through to all of us. Now, I know that I'm speaking to a congregation of saints that isn't intent upon running out and abandoning Christ today or anytime soon or, or ever. But it is important to be reminded of these two great truths because they do something good inside of us. To be reminded of the fact there is no greater life than the Christian life for all of its hardship and all of its persecution. The blessings are infinitely greater. The blessing of being able to live life as God created us to live in relationship with Him and in the holiness that is described in His Word. And then second, to remind us to stay with the world and the kingdom that cannot be shaken, and that is the kingdom of God that's built upon Christ. The world that you and I live in is shaking right before our very eyes. It's all started, friends. If you haven't noticed, you are not paying attention. And it's not going to get better because the Bible says things are going to get worse and worse as the day of the Lord's approach nears. And here we live in a country the economy, the economy, the economy, the economy, the economy, the economy, as, as if the biggest problem in our nation is the economy. Why is the economy where it is? Is it because people followed God's law? Or is it because man is so sinful he cannot govern himself? And he will victimize anyone and everyone in order to advance himself, even if it means the collapse of an entire economic system around him. I got mind. I've got enough to survive in my lifetime. The problem with the country and the world is not economic. Don't believe it. It is moral and it is spiritual. This world is the way that it is. Because people, the world is moving away from God's morality and from His truth. And there is no sign that it is going to change its mind about that anytime soon. And there's a price to be paid for that. You sow to the wind as a nation or an individual or as a world, and you are going to reap the whirlwind. There is Nothing else to reap because we reap what we sow. And so the shaking is occurring. And we see it. We see how bad the decisions are. We see how illogical and irrational and unholy they are. And we see that one bad, evil decision by God's definition is followed by another and another and another until our hearts can be gripped as Christians by fear related to the world that we live in. And so the answer to that is what the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us. And that is to be reminded of the fact 
that all of this is headed for destruction. But we are a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You say, what should I do instead of worrying and being frantic? Just what he tells us to do here. And that is to stay close to God, grow in our relationship with God, and continue to serve Him and obey Him and His calling upon our lives. And to then have the confidence that comes out of that with knowing that God will be faithful to every promise He's given us in His Word. I'll tell you something. I'm two minutes over. You might have noticed that's not what I'm going to tell you. But I tell you that to know that I'm sensitive to time. The days of little babyish milk sermons and Christianity is over. If you go searching for that and you say, I want to find a place who is going to make me feel good in the middle of the madness that I'm in by not telling me the truth about what God has called us to do and to be in our season in human history, then you go off to be self-deceived. But just know that it does not change what is happening and will happen. It is a time now for Christianity and our relationship with the Lord with great maturity to be able to hear hard things to hear, difficult things to hear about the future and to not have it terrify us and not have it terrify us Because we can go deep in a relationship with God that is deeper and more intimate and more faith-filled than any of the nonsense that the world is doing around us. And that's what's needed in our hour. Moses ran his race. David ran his race. Paul ran his race. Peter ran his race. Mary ran her race. They all ran their race. And most of the race for Christians all through history has been in the middle of tremendous difficulty. I wish everything was easy and headed in the right direction. And I could preach different sermons maybe. But that's not the world that we live in. And we need to face it. And then we need to allow God to be in our lives what only He can be and what He wants to be and will be in each of our lives in the moment in human history that He's called us as God's people to live for Him and be an influence for Him in your family, in your neighborhood, in your school, in your workplace, in your sphere of influence. This is the greatest life that a person can live. We're part of a kingdom that can't be shaken. And so if God has to shake 
the rest of the world so that they then look over at our lives and say, why isn't their life shaken? Then he's willing to do that. But we need to be in our place when he does that to allow that light to go on for a whole world of people that are going to still come to know the Lord the same way that we did. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord.